Hey, creep. I want to tell you a tale, if you're ready to hear it. It may not be pleasant. It may not end the way you want it to. But this story is gripping, and as fascinating as it is shockingly horrifying. Are you ready? My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. Welcome, creeps, to part three of the Johnny Gosh story. If you haven't listened to part one and two, please go back now and listen before proceeding. All three episodes should be considered the same overall episode. So if you're listening to this, this being part three, you will find yourself confused in the middle of a complex story and with your head spinning. For those of you who are caught up, we are in for a wild ride. And I might run out of breath because this episode will be fast-paced and as concise and to the point as possible, which is a bit out of character for this podcast. But as I said, part one, two, and three should all be considered one episode. And if that's the case, we are coming in for a very bumpy landing. For some of you, at least, you might be thinking, Cole, what are you talking about? It's solved. But that's not an absolutely accepted conclusion. Either the case is unsolved, or the case is solved, but still, no one is sure of Johnny Gosh's whereabouts, or even if he's still alive, which is ultimately what this is all about. To recap briefly and to transition into this episode, let me touch on a key point which may have been skipped or abbreviated for the sake of our episode's running time. Johnny was kidnapped while delivering newspapers. His parents were alerted to that fact after neighbors called to complain their morning papers hadn't come yet. Within a matter of minutes, Johnny had seemingly disappeared from the face of the earth. Conspiracies about the involvement of Johnny's own parents began to circulate and fly. People began making emotional and unfounded claims, and if you have spent any time in a true crime community of any sort, really, you know what I'm saying is true and happens to this day. This deserves no more proof or justification. But just as the community had their theories about Noreen and John Sr., Johnny's parents had theories of their own as to what happened to their son. Noreen Gosh in particular, who had been denied the resources of a diligent police force or the benefit of the doubt, was convinced her son had been kidnapped by pedophiles and sold into an organized ring of underground and clandestine predators. In the 80s, the idea that there would be an organized group of seemingly rare individuals who had found each other and banded together to trade children in their chase to enslave and exert control as some sort of sick and twisted perversion was so terrifying, so fantastical and fictional, so outlandish that at the time people simply began to look on Noreen with pity or contempt. Either she'd lost her mind in her own grief, or she had conspired to get rid of her own son. The weight of finding Johnny had fallen on the shoulders of Noreen and John in the absence of a diligent and willing police force. Noreen Gosh, Johnny's mother, had actually contacted and informed authorities about a couple of odd happenings before the abduction of Johnny. Those happenings included early morning phone calls, which had begun a month before Johnny's disappearance and stopped abruptly with his abduction, as well as that conversation Johnny had been having at his brother's football game with a police officer under the high school bleachers in the football stadium. It just so happened that merely days after Johnny had been taken, while delivering newspapers, Noreen had found an article, 
published on September 24, 1982, that detailed the events of the abduction of two Des Moines girls who had been taken against their will and forced into prostitution. Now, do you remember Orville Cooney, that alcoholic good-for-nothing police chief with the West Des Moines Police Department? Well, when provided the story by Doreen, he once again refused to investigate a possible link between the two events. And when Noreen Gosh called the press conference to point the attention of the masses to the story, well, the worst colors of humankind were brought to light. The family was inundated with death threats and were told to stop making waves. It appeared that ignorance was bliss, and bliss was something no one was willing to give up easily. Given no other choice, the Gosh family hired a private investigator a month after Johnny's disappearance. Their suspicion was that Johnny had been abducted and forced into sex slavery. Does that sound crazy to you? Slaves in America in the 80s? There's no way. That's abhorrent. Such a thing can't happen. Well, let me shatter your ignorant bliss for a moment. It's still happening. In December of 1982... One of the first things the Gosh's private investigator, Dennis Whalen, did was, in fact, attend a child auction. Yes, you heard me right. A child auction. In Houston, Texas. He attended it in an attempt to find Johnny. It's so odd and uncomfortable to say, but sadly, Johnny was not amongst the children for sale. Days turned into months. The older I get, the more acutely aware I am of how long each day feels while the passage of time itself is accelerating at an alarming pace. So, to say hope was a finite and fickle resource within the Gosh home is an understatement. But in March 1983, the family received a glimmer of hope. Johnny was reportedly spotted in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He was seen being chased by two men, and ran up to a woman, pleading with her. Please, lady, help me. My name is John David Gosh. We've said it before, and unfortunately this was another one of those moments where people see others in distress and don't think it's their problem, or simply don't want anything to interfere with their day as they move around like automatons on tracks as they accomplish the goals of their routine and predefined afternoon. The woman did inform police of the matter, though, after the fact, stating she assumed it was a family situation, and that it was some bratty kid making a fuss, being angry with his family for whatever reason, and couldn't possibly be Johnny Gosh, that she'd seen on the news. Now, this lady wasn't a bad person. I'm not saying that. I just want to punctuate, and perhaps inspire some self-reflection on my part as well as yours, that this event could have happened to any of us, and a shocking number of us creeps would have reacted the same way. This woman wasn't without guilt or regret, which is ultimately what I wish none of you have to feel, the guilt or regret of not having done something. In October 1983, the woman reported seeing Johnny brought up in a TV drama about Adam Walsh, the abducted and murdered son of America's Most Wanted host. She came to the sickening and horrible conclusion that she could have saved Johnny. Had she acted, or not written it off as a disturbance to her day, working with the FBI, because the West Des Moines police were just of no help. The private investigator hired by the Gosh family, as well as the FBI, concluded that the boy who had in fact pleaded with the woman was Johnny Gosh. The Gosh family then waited another two years, without much movement in the case. 
But in July 1985, the family and the country received yet another glimmer of hope that indicated Johnny was still alive. In Iowa, a woman received a dollar bill in her change after a purchase from the grocery store with the message, I am alive, Johnny Gosh. The note was scribbled on the dollar bill itself, and that note was analyzed by multiple experts who unanimously concluded the signature belonged to Johnny. But hope is the mother of all despair. At a press conference, the Gosh family pleaded, Please, we beg of you, contact us privately and allow us to have our son back. Our son has endured enough pain and suffering. Please, return him to us alive and unharmed. If his life has been taken, we ask that we may have information, so that we at least know what has happened to him. We've only discussed Johnny so far this episode, but remember Eugene and Mark? Well, their stories aren't exactly over yet either. In 1984, a man named Sam Soda contacted Doreen to put together a meeting. He was apparently a private investigator who wanted to donate his time pro bono. By this point, Noreen was hardened to the realities of people and documented everything. And since police were of no help, Noreen brought with her a tape recorder to her meeting at Sam Soda's office. Sam Soda told Noreen that he had someone. An informant, he said, that told him another boy would be taken in the second week of August and that the second boy would also be a paper boy. Why on earth, though, hadn't Sam Soda taken this to authorities? If this wasn't just a farce, he should be speaking to police about the matter, surely. But Noreen, not willing to dismiss this, took her newfound information and tape recording to said police, who, once again, declined to investigate and dismiss the matter entirely. But then the media also dismissed her except for Des Moines Register reporter named Frank Santiago, who was at least willing to listen to the tape conversation. And then on Sunday, August 12th, if you have a head for numbers, you remember that Eugene Martin was abducted while out delivering papers. The mysterious Sam Soda hadn't been lying. Like clockwork, his prediction had come true. Sam Soda had come to her with information, altruistically and out of the goodness of his heart, right? Well, that may not be the case. It was not long after Eugene was snatched from the streets and kidnapped that Noreen, as well as other locals, received a modified version of a poster that had been distributed for Missing Johnny Gosh. The poster was the kidnapped and missing poster for Johnny Gosh accompanied by a composite sketch. That was what it was initially. But someone had added, below the composite sketch of the man who supposedly drove the blue Ford Fairmont was the same sketch with tinted glasses on the man. And then beside that was a photo of Sam Soda. The progression, the similarities. Well, they were disturbing to say the least. The implication clearly being that Sam Soda was the man who had kidnapped Johnny. It wasn't a concrete indictment of the man's character, but the Goshes instantly became very wary and suspicious of Sam, and I don't blame them. I would be extremely suspicious myself. And if you have the time, I urge you to try and find the poster online. Not only had Sam Soda been able to predict that another child would be taken, calling it down to the week, and considering the time between Johnny and Eugene was two years, well, that basically made that a one out of a hundred call. But he also displayed an unsettling array of information and knowledge pertaining to pedophile rings existing in Omaha, 
And in fact, Sam Soda, who in an article was identified as the spokesperson for the anti-child pornography group called Stolen Children, are reported every day, or scared for short, was also responsible for outing a pedophile, working at the local paper in Des Moines. 37-year-old Frank Sakura. Frank Sakura was an employee in the circulation department of the paper. Yep, that's right. The department that is in charge of disseminating the papers to the paper boys. When confronted, Frank admitted to molesting up to 14 young paper boys. But a polygraph test showed that he probably had no involvement in the Johnny or Eugene kidnappings. Eventually, police did get involved, although always too late and with little enthusiasm. As stated by Noreen, police did begin to monitor Sam Soda, but at this same time, as it seemed the attention might be loosening on the family, they began to receive threats. The family fell victim to prank calls, public harassment, threats, and one terrible event where a man actually called the Gosh home and tried demanding $10,000 for the return of Johnny. The caller directed Noreen to travel to a telephone booth a few miles from the home, and there she would find a note. Noreen, willing to follow any lead and headstrong and brave as ever, did exactly that. And the note was exactly where the caller said it would be. The note informed her that she was to travel to a certain area of the city alone and deposit the $10,000 by 1 a.m. But once again, the police were too slow to set up a sting, and the deadline was missed. The sinister man called back once more, saying... You waited too long, lady. You won't get your kid back now. John Sr., but more so Noreen, had had their fair share of abuse from not only the police, but their neighbors and larger community. A substantial amount of abuse that would crack less headstrong individuals. But unperturbed and caring little what others thought, the Goshes called another press conference. In front of eager journalists and reporters, Noreen enlightened the crowd, informing the press of three men from Des Moines, as well as a pedophile in Houston that she stated the police allegedly knew about. And although the police never commented, Noreen also stated that the police were doing everything they could to bring them to justice within the legal parameters. Noreen was well aware her words could cause the suspects to flee, but felt the reward outweighed the risk and that her words could also possibly cause them to self-incriminate and try to flee or dispose of evidence. Sam Soda particularly was not named, though. But details referring to him specifically were shared, as she said a man had left town, and that at that moment the harassment had ended, that man being Sam Soda. But the question still stood. Was Johnny Gosh alive? Or were his parents searching for his remains? In 1988, on Valentine's Day, the family received a typed letter, the author claiming to be Johnny. I'll never be permitted to return home. They've cut my hair. They've dyed my hair. I look different. Please, don't ever forget me. Love your son, Johnny Gosh. By Noreen's own admission, she fell apart reading the letter outside at her mailbox and between sobs dragged herself inside the home. The letter was typed and that always leaves questions, but parts of the letter not shared included details only Johnny could know, and the letter was signed off in the same way Johnny always had. Your son, Johnny Gosh. 
Hey creeps, I know this is a long one. This story is so much more of a rabbit hole than I thought it would be, but thank you for sticking it out with me. Next week will be our final episode pertaining to this particular case, where we discuss a mysterious man who claimed to have helped kidnap Johnny. I hope you join us and listen along with us next episode. Until then, if you are within the same household and can responsibly do so considering the pandemic, please give your son or daughter, your mother or father, a hug for me. I personally miss being able to hug my parents, and I urge you, even if they grate on your nerves at times or you haven't been in the habit of doing so, but can responsibly and within the same household bubble do so, please just go and hug them. Life is too precious, and there are too many things that seek to separate us from the ones we love to not be hugging one another. Any chance we can. So, creeps, that brings us to the end of our tale. If you enjoyed this episode and want more, please consider becoming a Patreon member by visiting patreon.com slash talesbycole where we release a Patreon-exclusive podcast weekly for Patreon members generous enough to donate $5 or more. If you have some time on your hands, please consider leaving us a 5-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. They are so incredibly important in getting these stories out there. And even more importantly, every 5-star review gets me one step closer to moving out of my mother's basement. You can also join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Tales by Cole. This episode was written and narrated by me, Cole Weavers, and sound production and editing by Matt Black. Remember, creeps, take care of one another, stay safe, and don't forget to lock the doors. (laughs) 